Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 37, the trial of atorvastatin for the primary prevention of cardiovascular events in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, TRACE RA, a multicenter randomized placebo-controlled trial. This study was published by Arthritis and Rheumatology the last week and is an exciting one to talk about because this question of cardiovascular events and mortality in rheumatoid arthritis has been on our minds lately. It's also an opportunity to discuss this article that appeared in Nature recommending the retirement of statistical significance that everyone seems to be so fond of, and I personally find incredibly unconvincing. Without further ado, let's talk about the trial. For background, almost half of all deaths in rheumatoid arthritis are caused by cardiovascular disease. We know that rheumatoid arthritis is a highly inflammatory state, and there's been this thought that a high-grade inflammation would promote cardiovascular events. Risk algorithms that have assessed cardiovascular disease for a broad population have not contained enough patients who had rheumatoid arthritis to make any definitive statement about them. So we're in this sort of hazy place where we expect that rheumatoid arthritis confers some kind of elevated risk for cardiovascular disease, but we don't have any evidence to guide us in whether or not to treat them for this. There have been two other trials that kind of looked at this. There's a Tayside controlled study of Crestor in rheumatoid arthritis that suggested it reduced CRP levels. Big whoop, it's a surrogate outcome. There's also the Terra trial on atorvastatin 40 milligrams daily um, as an adjunct for DMARD therapy, showed that it may have helped a little bit for inflammatory control of rheumatoid arthritis, presumably through some of the pleiotropic effects of statin therapy. Yet no trials to date had definitively demonstrated that statins could result in a significant, we'll talk about that word later, reduction in cardiovascular events for patients with rheumatoid arthritis who didn't have some other requirement for statin therapy. So to that end, these authors performed a multi-center, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial. It's a very good kind of trial to assess this question. They compared atorvastatin, 40 milligrams, what I'm going to call Lipitor from now on, with placebo, which was essentially dummy atorvastatin. It was conducted at 102 centers in the United Kingdom and included patients if they met the 1987 ACR criteria for rheumatoid arthritis and were either 50 years or older or had rheumatoid arthritis for more than 10 years. Seems pretty reasonable. I really like how broad that inclusion criteria is. This is exactly the population for whom I would be considering statin therapy, but wouldn't know what to do. They did exclude patients who were already taking statins, those with known cardiovascular disease, diabetes, myopathy, or any other contraindication to statins, all of which makes sense. Those are very reasonable exclusion criteria. So at the beginning, I think these authors did an excellent job of designing this trial. Now they intended for a minimum of five years of treatment. That makes sense because you need to give time for events to accrue, which as we'll soon see, wound up being a problem. So their pre-specified primary endpoint was major vascular events. This is a little bit more amorphous than a lot of these sorts of trials. They define this as non-fatal MI, which I like, non-fatal presumed ischemic stroke, I guess I like that, TIAs, any coronary or non-coronary revascularization, or cardiovascular death. These endpoints seem objective, and for the most part they are, but some of these things, like a transient ischemic attack or coronary revascularization, are open to subjective decision-making. That means that if there is some sort of unblinding, which for some reason I suspect there was in this trial, there's a chance that these outcomes are not as objective as we'd like to hope. Now the original protocol anticipated needing 3,800 patients for five years in order to have enough power to detect a plausible risk reduction with the tarvastatin. What does that mean? Well, before you run a trial like this, we perform what we call a power calculation. 
The goal of a power calculation is to say, assuming this percent of events and assuming this percent of improvement, how many patients will I need to demonstrate that at a you know, statistically significant level? It's a useful thing to do because it makes you decide before you run the trial what kind of impact you're going to consider clinically meaningful. You can always quibble about whether or not it's a really clinically meaningful difference, but it's a useful practice to go into a trial pre-specified like this. Now, unfortunately for these authors, their actual event rate was much lower than what they expected. So what they had to do in order to still demonstrate some improvement was increase the size of the trial. So instead of 3,800 patients, they decided to try to get to 5,400 patients. This would have let them show a 32% relative risk reduction, which seems reasonable. We'll talk about that a little more later. Analysis was intention to treat. All the other statistics were more or less appropriate. Let's get to the results. Between August of 2007 and November of 2011, 3,000 patients with rheumatoid arthritis were randomized. The mean age was 61 years old. Most of them, 74%, were women, and they were followed for 2.5 years on average. Why only two and a half years? Well, because of the lower expected event rate, they terminated this trial early. Ugh. Early termination of a trial almost always makes me sad if it's not related to some sort of signal towards harming patients. If your new drug is causing death, you should stop your trial. If your new drug isn't looking as good as you hoped, stopping your trial early is a bad idea. We did this pre-specified analysis based on a number of assumptions. When you stop early, it of course raises the possibility that you won't see the effect that actually exists. However, when you stop early, it also increases the risk that you'll show an effect when there is none. That's because the smaller your trial, the more likely this sort of random variation that causes trouble could work its way into your results. Now, I really don't think they should have stopped this trial. So what if their event rate was a little low? Keep going. Give us the information and tell us what it's going to look like. It's obviously costly to continue a randomized controlled trial, and I'm certain that was one of the reasons that drove this. But there wasn't any signal towards patient safety, which would have been an acceptable reason to stop early. That being said, they still had 3,000 patients, so let's talk about it. Now, at the beginning of the study, the compliance was 89% in both groups, placebo and Lipitor. By the end, the compliance in the Lipitor group had fallen to 39%. It's kind of a rough attrition. If that sounds bad to you, in the placebo group, it fell to 25%. That's over a 15% difference in rates of compliance, which really makes me wonder if there was some unblinding here. It shouldn't be very hard to create a blinded placebo, it's just a pill. You can make it taste bad. You can make them look exactly the same. So I don't have a great theory for how unblinding would have occurred. When you see a rate of compliance that is that different between the groups, it really makes me wonder. Getting to the meat of the paper, the primary endpoint, which as you remember was composite of a number of different ways to assess cardiovascular outcomes. 24 patients in the Lipitor group, 1.6% had a confirmed cardiovascular event compared to 2.4% in the placebo group. That's a 0.8% difference, which was not statistically significant. P equals 0.115. They did a number of different analyses, adjusting for differences at baseline between the groups, still not significantly different. They calculate a relative risk reduction of 32% based on this, which sounds like a relatively big number and is roughly in line with what they're actually hoping to find in their power calculation. Again, I'm a little frustrated they didn't just continue this trial. Now, a relative risk reduction of 32% sounds fantastic to patients. This is why I always say that if you're trying to trick someone into using a drug, the relative risk reduction is a good tool to use, which is why I don't use the relative risk reduction when I'm talking to patients. 
I much prefer the number needed to treat because I think it's a more honest appraisal of the data. So what is the number needed to treat? I've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. The number needed to treat is essentially just the inverse of the absolute risk reduction. So instead of using a relative risk reduction, you're asking what was the absolute difference in percentages at the end of the trial? Calculating an absolute risk reduction is actually a lot easier than a relative risk reduction. You just take the risk in the control group, subtract the risk in the treatment group, and you get an absolute risk reduction. Like I said in this case, 0.8%. Now that doesn't sound very impressive at all. To make this more clinically meaningful, you just take the inverse of that, which in this case is 121, which is the number needed to treat. I think the number needed to treat is much more useful because it answers the question, if I were to start practicing like this, how many times would I have to do this thing to result in one of the outcomes we're mentioning? So in this case, I would have to give 121 patients with rheumatoid arthritis, Lipitor, in order to prevent one cardiovascular event. That is not very impressive. It is also not that bad when you look at the safety analysis. There was really no difference in adverse events between Lipitor and placebo arm. 19.8% in the Lipitor arm, 19.5% in the placebo arm, and this included newer significant muscle pain, which we all think of as associated with statin use. There was actually no significant difference between the two. 132 patients in the Lipitor arm, 117 in the control arm. So overall, Lipitor was very well tolerated. They did a number of secondary analyses, but as usual, I think the headline results are really what we should be focused on. It's what we designed the trial to assess, and it's the only outcome that we were truly powered to detect, although in this case, stopping early meant that we weren't quite there. So what do we take from this? Well, unfortunately for the trial, there was an unexpectedly low rate of cardiovascular events in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, but that's kind of fortunate for patients with rheumatoid arthritis. I'd much rather have the results of this be that patients with rheumatoid arthritis don't get very many cardiovascular events. There are a number of reasons not to celebrate about that, which relate to the way randomized controlled trials differ from the real world. The first of these is the healthy volunteer effect, which is where patients who are healthier and more able to participate in a randomized controlled trial are more likely to participate. So perhaps we're missing out on a number of patients who would have driven that rate higher had they been healthy enough or feeling good enough to participate. They also did exclude patients with high baseline cardiovascular risk, so anyone who had diabetes or prior coronary artery disease was excluded. Now you would also wonder if the use of corticosteroids or DMARDs would have affected the rates of uh, cardiovascular events here. First, based on the recent CERT and CANTOS trial, I'm not a big believer in those things working. And second, there was actually no difference in baseline at the rates of corticosteroids or DMARD use, and there is no difference throughout the trial either. So that doesn't seem to be a plausible explanation. Last but not least, let's get to how we assess the significance of this trial. As I said before, the number needed to treat was 121, which to me isn't very impressive, and this result itself was not even statistically significant. The authors helpfully point out that because the 95% interval was relatively broad, they couldn't rule out any effect size between a 61% reduction and an 11% increase in cardiovascular events. I think that's an honest appraisal of the data, but I don't find it very helpful. So there's a really wide range of possible outcomes from this trial. We can't say for certain. And if we use the point estimate that they provided, it's not a huge benefit. To the author's credit, they went on to conclude that this trial does not support a primary prevention strategy involving statin use in all RA patients. They also concluded that Lipitor is safe for the primary prevention of cardiovascular events in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, both of which I think are supported by this trial. So kudos to them for interpreting the data properly. That being said, I think some people, based on this trial, 
we'll be led to conclude that we should be giving statins to these patients. Part of this is because of this recent publication in the journal Nature, entitled Scientists Rise Up Against Statistical Significance. This has been making the rounds on social media, and everyone seems to love it so much. I unfortunately don't like it at all, and I'm going to give you my reasons why. So for starters, for those who haven't read it, read it, check the show notes. I'll have a link to the article, and it'll be in the Dropbox where I keep all the papers for this podcast. So the authors point out that there are a number of problems with p-values. And the thing is, I agree with them that these are issues. The first is that people conclude there's no difference or no association between two things just because a p-value is larger than their threshold of 0.05. This applies to the paper we just discussed, where the p-value was not significant, and you could be inclined to conclude there was no difference. The thing is, there was a difference. The confidence interval just was wide enough that it included a difference, a no difference, and a lot of range in between. They also point out that people often conclude there's two studies conflicting each other, when in fact they show the same effect size, one just was powered correctly, and one wasn't powered enough to show the difference. I also agree with that. If you have the same effect size in two studies, they actually support each other, one just may be more precise than the other. They also point out a couple of other things that I agree with. The first is that we're bucketing things into statistically significant and statistically non-significant, when in reality, there is sort of a spectrum. Is P equals 0.06 really any different from P equals 0.04? It's hard to argue that there's a big qualitative difference between those two. This also encourages researchers to do p-hacking, where they bend the data, analyze the data a little bit differently, just to show that they got under that magical threshold. I think these are all relatively cogent, reasonable concerns about p-values. I think the solution is for us to talk about p-values better. We should talk more about the effect sizes in relationship to the p-values and discuss the power of trials when we think about them. Their solution is, and I quote, We call for the entire concept of statistical significance to be abandoned. I think that's a ridiculous assertion. And here's why. The problem that they seem to address throughout the article is the sad, sad fact of a poor author discovering that their results aren't significant and now they can't get recognition at a national meeting or they can't get it published. That's fine, but what I'm frustrated about is how often we're actually approving drugs that probably don't work very well. They're essentially trying to solve the problem of this study didn't necessarily show a benefit that was statistically significant, but we should still think of it as possibly useful. My concern is that we're doing that too much already. Their solution to statistical significance testing is to get rid of it and instead use compatibility intervals. We did this in this paper where the authors said that this data is compatible with an effect size between 61% and 11%. I don't think that's a useful way to talk about the data. That certainly implies that there's a benefit to using statins, but it doesn't give me a good sense of whether or not this is a data I should trust. Saying this was not statistically significant, to me, is a much more more coherent way to talk about the results of the study. Now, if the main problem in biomedical research is that we're missing out on all these great therapies because they're not quite passing statistical muster, then my solution is just to design more trials that are larger to show that significance. The fact that we've created this incentive structure has resulted in a lot of large, high-quality, randomized controlled trials in various fields, including rheumatology, that have demonstrated beyond any reasonable doubt that some of our therapies work. The therapies that don't work don't deserve some sort of half-hearted, oh, well, the compatibility interval includes some values that may be beneficial to patients, so maybe we should approve this anyway. I just don't find that very convincing. My second problem is that, yes, it's an issue that we're taking data which is a spectrum and we're creating a binary outcome from it. That's not ideal, but guess what? 
We're going to make binary decisions on this data no matter what. The FDA doesn't approve a drug sometimes if you feel like it. They approve, they approve drugs or they don't approve drugs. You're not going to give a drug a little bit. You're going to give a drug or you're not going to give a drug. So at some point, a binary decision has to be made. Why not make that binary decision all the way at the beginning when authors power their trial? The authors say this is the effect size that's reasonable. This is the threshold of significance that we're going to design the trial to detect. And if this therapy really works, then we will be able to show that with this p-value that falls under the commonly accepted threshold for significant results. I think that's a much better way to do this than allowing people to design studies to show whatever compatibility argument their drug reps can later argue for, and then forcing the public and scientists and the FDA and physicians to interpret these amorphous, it could have been 61%, it could have hurt 11% kind of results. Now I'm just one guy, and I know I've cited John Ioannidis quite a bit, but he is the most cited researcher in medicine, and his thoughts on this were published in JAMA as well. I'll include a link in the paper in the show notes. He said, banning statistical significance while retaining p-values or confidence intervals will not improve numeracy and may foster statistical confusion and create problematic issues with study interpretation, a state of statistical anarchy. That is actually what I think this would create. And so I am officially lodging my complaints against this paper. And when I interpret the paper we just discussed, I'm going to say that it showed there is no significant difference between Lipitor or placebo for the prevention of cardiovascular events. The authors concluded the same thing. I commend them on an excellent study, although I am sad that it terminated early. In my own practice, I don't often prescribe Lipitor for patients like this. If there's someone who is at a high risk of cardiovascular events, I would consider it for primary prevention, but as before, I don't think that's necessarily supported by the data. That's it for this week. I would love some more feedback on the episodes. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and sign up to follow it. You can find everything at ebroom.com, as well as links to all the papers. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week.